What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning back to the Alma Mac here on 93.3 CFMU every Thursday at noon, where we talk to a McMaster graduate student about their research and, of course, what they enjoy doing outside the lab. So thank you to all of our listeners who are tuning in to another episode where, of course, we have another McMaster graduate student. For today's episode, please welcome Pallavi Mukherjee, who is a third-year PhD candidate in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology under the Faculty of Science. How are things going today, Pallavi? They're going good. (laughs) Good. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, And, you know, uh, having gone through uh, comprehensive examinations where I myself am also now a PhD candidate, I have to, I think I'm now obliged to ask every single PhD candidate that I meet how your candidacy or comprehensive exams went. So um, <clears throat> when I joined McMaster, I, I knew that I would have to give the comprehensive exam within the first 20 months. Uh, I was really stressed from about it, like <clears throat> from the beginning. So when the date was coming closer, I really, really was very stressed. Uh, but then uh, we our uh, comprehensive was that we had to provide two topics to our committee members on which we'll have to write like a research proposal later. So they'll choose one of the two topics and then uh, one topic on which we'll have to write a research proposal and we'll have like a month to write the proposal. And then uh, at the end of it, we'll have like an oral exam where uh, they ask questions like two rounds of questions like it happen- happens in a defense. So then... Um, so I, I was able to get like I provided two topics after talking to my supervisor and um, and they gave me like they selected one of the topics, which I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, I was I was fine with that. And then um, the whole one month was quite um, traumatic per se. <laughs> so uh, I had to like study a lot. I had to read a lot. And but but uh, what I got out of it was that when I wrote the proposal, I was quite proud of it, like it coming from me. Mm. So, uh, and then during the like oral examination, uh, my committee members, like they were really uh, very understanding. So they, they asked questions in a very, um, like in a way that I would be, I wouldn't get scared. So, uh, yeah. So I had a very uh, decent uh, comprehensive exam. Uh, they, they were uh, all the supervisor, all the committee members who asked me questions, they were very uh, related to the proposal and not like in any way trying to, you know, demean me or anything of that sort. And, um, and I, yeah, I, I passed my exam. And I think after that, it took me a while to for it to sink in because I kept thinking that I have to do this all over again. Like it felt like a dream kind of a situation. Yeah. But after it, it got finished. I was so relieved, like immensely relieved. Yeah. yeah I like the, the adjective you use, traumatic. Um, <laughs> and one month. Yeah. It seems like a very uh, tough and difficult time to get that all done yeah. within a short time frame. Yeah, I know. It, it was a lot. It was a lot. But then I think uh, once you come like out of it you kind of you become a different person altogether mm. like, but yeah you get a lot of confidence also I, like I I was low on confidence but I felt a little bit more empowered like by after giving my comprehensive but yeah I, I love that yeah because especially I felt that too a little bit especially during the Q&A round which I was most nervous for right because you can prepare as much for your presentation your research proposal but with the Q&A you have all bets are off right yeah. you don't know what they're going to ask so, exactly. That's what scares you. Like, what are they going to ask you? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. As long as you get the questions right or somewhat in the right direction, it definitely builds confidence. Yeah, I agree. With that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you made it to the other side. Now, PhD candidate. 
Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Now just a defense, but we'll we'll think about that. But I feel like if I've done that, I can take care of the defense as well. Like that seems more uh, like imaginable as compared to passing comps. Yeah. Yeah. Seems more more doable. Yeah. Some people even say comps is like a mini defense. It's a mini defense, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, that's wonderful to hear, and it's always interesting to hear what uh, different graduate students go through with their programs in terms of their comprehensive exams. Because of course, of course it differs from program to program, university to university, but it all unifies us at least. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All, all right, well, Pallavi, uh, thanks for sharing that and sharing that experience. I'm also curious if you can provide a brief uh, overview of your research for the listeners. Yeah. So uh, basically, my research is studying an enzyme called new B. Uh, this enzyme is present in uh, bacteria, especially N meningitis and other pathogenic bacteria as well. So basically, uh, they make the new B uh, enzyme catalyzes a reaction uh, that makes sialic acid, or we call it N acetyl neuraminic acid. And uh, Essentially, bacteria don't need it, but human beings make a lot of sialic acid in the nervous system. And uh, the way the human beings make it is very different. Like not only human, but mammals, they make it in a different, uh, they have a different biosynthetic pathway, but they do have an end product as the sialic acid. And sialic acid helps you to uh, evade the uh, host cells because uh, if uh, the bacteria can mimic the sialic acid then the mammal's host cell like the host response won't know it's the mammal sialic acid or the bacteria's so that way the bacteria can evade the host uh, responses of the mammal that they want to colonize and that way it can grow and then colonize and then uh, cause all diseases so if i can so basically my lab wants to study uh, my research project wants to study that uh, enzymes uh, catalytic pathway to understand its transition state structure and uh, if we can find the transition state structure then we can uh, make transition state analogs Basically, they are uh, inhibitors that can be turned into drugs, uh, which uh, can then be developed into antibiotics. Okay, very interesting. Thanks for that overview. So this this metabolic pathway that is that new B that's the enzyme. That's the enzyme. Yeah. Is this metabolic pathway is this both in bacteria and mammals, or is it only in bacteria? So the the uh, metabolic pathway is just in mammals, but some bacteria, uh, some patho pathogenic bacteria, they also um, have this pathway, which is a little different. So in mammals, they use different enzymes to reach the end product, that is sialic acid, and in uh, bacteria, they basically club to uh, reactants called phosphorinol pyruvate and N-acetylmonosamine, and they condense them and they make that directly. Okay. So, so it if we make uh if we target this enzyme, it will not cause any side effect on mammals because that enzyme is not present in mammals. Okay. Okay. And which is why it makes it such a good target for uh, the development of antibiotics. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And can you talk a little bit more about the transition state? Because from my understanding, that's um, something that you have to study in order for you to even think about what analogs which will eventually become drugs or inhibitors, how those yeah. can be developed. So how do you, first of all, what is the transition state? And second, how do you study that? 
Okay. So the so and for any reaction to reach the product, it has to go through uh, an energetic barrier. It requires like a minimum energy to reach the product. So it, the the figure is like this. It's like this is the axis. This is the y and the x axis. This is the energy and this is the reaction progress or the reaction coordinate. So this is the curve that it goes. So for the reactant to form the product, if it is thermodynamically feasible, it has to go through this ener high ener energy state. And this energy state is known as the transition state. And the energy needed to cover this uh, transition state is called the activation energy. So uh, basically enzymes catalyze the reaction by lowering the energy of this transition state to a little less than what it would be if it was uncatalyzed reaction. Okay. And um, so the, the lifetime of this transition state is of a single bond vibration. So it is like 10 to the power minus 13 seconds. That is how uh, that is how short it lasts for. So you can't really isolate it and then study it using extra crystallography. So you'll have to uh, study it using experimental techniques. So the only technique right now that's available is called kinetic isotope effect. Okay. Um, so basically, we uh, like uh, I want to measure the kinetic isotope effect uh, experimentally and then also computationally and then uh, like verify the numbers and uh, like whichever one agrees with each other, like the experimental and the computational values, that would be the structure of my transition state. So um, if I talk a little bit about the kinetic isotope effect, uh, basically it's like an organic tool. Um, the, the, the formula for a kinetic isotope effect is that the rate constant of a light isotope to the rate constant of a heavy isotope is equal to kinetic isotope effect. Okay. An isotope. Uh, so an isotope is basically there are two elements uh, that have the same um, number of protons, but different number of neutrons and therefore different mass number. For example, we have one hydrogen and two hydrogen. So one hydrogen is hydrogen and two hydrogen is deuterium. So if I, so basically the concept of kinetic isotope effect relies on the uh, the vibrational and uh, like the uh, the vibration of the molecule so if i have like the vibration of a bond so suppose i have ch bond carbon and a hydrogen bond mm -hmm. and i have a carbon and a deuterium bond right so the hydrogen is lighter compared to the deuterium right and because since, of the different number of neutrons and therefore different the, number yeah because of the different mass number so something which is lighter would vibrate at a higher frequency as compared to something which is heavier. So it will vibrate at a lower energy. Because of this difference in vibration, what happens is that when a bond is breaking, the lighter isotopes bond would break faster as compared to a heavier isotope bond. Because that's how the energy profile, it would be. So if you, if we look at the energy profile, it would be like this. Like if you look at the Morse potential, it would have the CD bond would be here. The CH bond will be here. It would be vibrating at a higher frequency. So when we are trying to, if, if a bond is breaking, so then what will happen is that the CH bond will break faster compared to CD. So kinetic isotope effect tells you if the lighter bond is breaking faster compared to the heavier bond. So the heavier bond is basically a reference for the molecule to see which bond is breaking actually. Okay. So basically we want to know about the chemistry at the transition state and chemistry means breaking of bond and formation of new bonds. So to know that we need a reference something. So the heavier isotope is like a, our reference to know if if our actual bond is breaking or not. Okay. And once you have that information, um, like, uh, I guess the rate at which it breaks, um, 
and you're looking at the light isotope versus the heavier isotope, what do you do with that information? What does it tell you? So basically, uh, so what will happen is that if there is a bond breaking at the transition state, mm-hmm. then I know that basically this CH bond is what is breaking. Suppose it's a CH bond. Then I know that at the transition state, the CH bond is breaking. If the CH bond is breaking, it will give rise to a primary kinetic isotope effect. And that value would be more than one. Okay. If a, if a bond is breaking and if a bond is not breaking, the, the, the bond that of our interest is not breaking, then the kinetic isotope effect value would be equal to one. It would be unity. So we would know from the kinetic isotope effect experimental values, which bonds are breaking, which bonds are not breaking at the transition state. And that will help us map the transition state computationally. Okay. And then from there, you can then decide um, or learn how to develop what kind of analogs, how to structure them um, to then inhibit that would inhibit that enzyme yeah so my research would just be to do the transition state analysis because like a long-term project itself and making inhibitors takes a lot of time like I had this discussion with my supervisor many a times that I'm like why aren't we making inhibitors so he's like it's not easy Pallavi it takes like so they made a transition state uh, analog called immucillin H which is now a drug it is to treat T-cell leukemia and uh, it was made by uh, by like it took five years and three labs to kind of you know make that inhibitor yeah and then it went through clinical trials and then got approved so it's not very easy to make even if you have a blueprint it's not always possible to make like an an inhibitor okay so even if you get past the first step which is identifying the transition state you may not always proceed to the subsequent steps But uh, I think many people might ask this question, like, why do you want to make transition state analog inhibitors in the first place? Mm -hmm. So the concept is that, uh, like in 1948, Pauling proposed that uh, the, um, so initially it was that the enzyme and the substrate, they form a complex, that's called Meckler's complex. And uh, if if there were all these inhibitors were based on that substrate design. So they would be either competitive inhibitors or uh, uncompetitive or non-competitive inhibitors. They would be competing with the substrate to basically bind with the enzyme. But uh, Pauling proposed that uh, at uh, basically the interaction between the transition state and the enzyme is a lot more stronger compared to the enzyme and the substrate. So, uh, and it is so strong that it doesn't dissociate easily. So if I can make a transition, if we can make a transition state inhibitor, then the inhibitor will bind to the enzyme and it will not let go of it. So the residence time would be like uh, close to zero. So it would be a very powerful and tight binding inhibitor. It will completely inhibit the enzyme. It's a better target, especially when we're talking this in the context of antibiotics. In terms of antibiotic, yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, and if we can just um, take a step back, because uh, I'm really interested in this and in how you study this transition state. I, um, so is it all computational? Like what kind of, how do you manipulate and how do you study the bonds and how do you know which bonds to study or target? So like my compound, uh, the, the ones that, that, that I want to study my uh, kinetic isotope effect on has three carbon. Okay. And we want to study multiple kinetic isotope effects. So we uh, so I'm making labeled material. So basically I'm going to use NMR spectroscopy to study the kinetic isotope effect. So I need a 
some spectroscopic method to study the kinetic isotope effect. So in my case, we are using NMR spectroscopy. Now NMR, uh, so 12 carbon is NMR inactive, but 13 carbon is NMR active. So um, uh, basically what I'm doing is I am making labeled starting material. My starting material is called phosphenol pyruvate or PP. So I'm going to, so if I want to study, suppose if I want to study any kind of bond breaking, suppose at C2, at C2 position, I have three carbon so if at c2 i want to know if a bond is breaking or not in that case i'll have to like uh, i'm making label material so i'll have 213 carbon label pep and i'll have 2313 carbon label pep meaning that they are labeled they have 13 carbon at the second and the third carbon position so the the 13 carbon nmr will give me information about what is what kind of chemistry is happening at position two Similarly, I do like these kind of doubly and singly labeled material. I'll keep making them and then I'll keep on uh, doing the reaction in the lab, like in the, in the NMR tube and then studying what's happening at each carbon to know what is happening where the bond is breaking. So once my experimental data is in place, that will only give rise to one kinetic isotope effect, like I, at every position. Okay. But for each carbon. For each carbon okay. but computationally i can have like 10 20 transition state structures but the kinetic isotope effect values that matches computationally to the experimental the only one transition state will match that would be my transition state structure okay okay so it's very systematic in terms of you don't have an idea of like okay this is the bonding you try to you have to test all of them you and then also match yeah. that computationally okay okay and Pallavi, you all, we uh briefly touched on it, but can you speak a little bit about what you hope are the ultimate findings of your research or what you hope at least that you're able to uh, complete or get, or get started with your PhD project? Yeah, so um, I think the idea is that uh, right now antibiotic resistance is a huge thing that is happening in our community, like in our uh, in the whole world, right? We just had a pandemic, so we know the implications of it. So if like uh, you need antibiotics for everything, like even if someone has a simple surgery, you need antibiotics. So if the bacteria has become resistant to it, and CDC expects uh, that by 2050 they will become resistant, and people will start uh, dying uh, because of um, the because of these pathogens. So I think that would be the one of the sole reasons to be working towards developing antibiotics right now because there is an urgent need to develop drugs so that um, like we can have longer life, we can have safer life. Um, so that is, uh, so my finding is to actually, so I, I tried asking my supervisor that can't we like just stop antibiotic resistance? Why does that happen? So he's like, it's evolution. You can't stop that. They, are, they also want to survive, right? Mm -hmm. But many researchers are working towards it. Like why does antibiotic resistance happen and how can it be combated? But um, my findings from my PhD research would be that like one step closer to designing an antibiotic that would then, you know, um, we can like, uh, we can, I don't think we can fight against the antibiotic resistance, but we can take steps towards like uh, building more antibiotics. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, uh, I guess, caution that you're using here um, because, you know, science isn't done in these giant great leaps, right? Like exactly what you're saying. We take small steps and you were speaking about this earlier too. We take those small steps together. It's different labs that are collaborating and, you know, you're just trying to keep pace with uh, the bacteria that are uh, evolving. Yeah, they're super yeah. smart here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I didn't know this beforehand before uh, reading that little primer that you sent me, but it seems like there are 
six or so uh, pathogens that are um, resistant to multiple drugs. There's a there's an acronym for them. This escape yeah. escape escape pathogens. Yeah. Escape. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think the rise of that has been not only because of increased use in healthcare, so hospital acquired infections, but also the use of antibiotics in, in agriculture. Um, yes, that is probably giving rise to and then we also don't follow the protocol, like many people take antibiotic and stop it in between. So you're not supposed right. to do that. And then many people take it when they have a, like a viral infection, but they take antibiotics. So I think awareness is needed amongst people like us as a community as well. Yeah. Yeah. To hopefully at least slow down the pace, not stop, because as you're mentioning that uh, may not be possible, but slow down the pace. Yeah. Eventually they will develop uh, resistance towards any antibiotic that we give because they're also evolving. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's how you keep on going forward, like one after another, one after another. uh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting with your research too, how you mentioned in the beginning. So if we inhibit this enzyme, uh, it won't affect mammals. And on top of that, you're studying the transition state where you mentioned that the bond is so strong between the transition state and the enzyme compared to the enzyme and substrate. So I feel yeah. like it's like a double uh, double puncher that we're trying our best as as possible to, to develop, potentially develop. Potentially develop, yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay Pallavi. Uh, so, you know, we kind of saw how there were differences between graduate students with their comprehensive exams and guaranteed there are differences between graduate students in what they do inside the lab. So can you walk us through what a typical day would look like for you when you go into the lab? So for me is that once I reach the lab, I um, start with my prep work for all the experiments. So um, so if I'm making something, then I have to wash the column, I have to uh, get the lyophilizer ready, or, or if I have to rotovap something. So I get all those things done, solutions made and everything. And then... Um, don't really have time to like uh, breathe much <laughs> so it's, it's like one thing after another so I, I do a lot of assays so I have to like start making solutions and then start running the assays and some usually they are time-based assays and then um, we also have undergrads who work in our lab so if I have to like you know if they need any kind of assistance mm-hmm. or something then I uh, uh, help them and um, so basically I'm the only grad student right now in the lab so I also take care of all the like administrative work like uh, if there are any supplies needed in the lab or not and throughout the day I'm just working on experiments um in between I'll take a coffee break because that's a lot much needed here yeah. need yeah yeah and I, I tend to stay a little late in the lab because I go a little late so I, I usually I come back by uh, 10 10 30 uh, but uh yeah but my whole day goes into doing experiments so we have like I, I usually do a lot of synthesis and purification assays and um um yeah and then if i have to make protein then uh, that's like once in a while kind of a thing it's not on a regular basis that i do that so my bio part is a little less and chemistry is essentially the main thing although the application is kind of bio related and um like I mentioned about NMR spectroscopy to just to give a background about it uh, basically NMR uh, so some of the um, uh, atoms they are some of the nucleus are NMR active and some of the nuclei are not NMR active so the nuclei which are not NMR active are the ones that have uh, even number of protons and even number of neutrons so uh, all other all of the other, rest of all the other nuclei are NMR active so 1H is NMR active and we use a lot of 1H uh, like proton NMR and we use certain carbon NMR because organic uh, compounds are essentially carbon-based compounds. And um, and particularly in our lab, 
I have used 19 fluorine, 31 phosphorus, 1 H NMR, and 13 carbon NMR. These are the NMRs that I do. These are qualitative NMR just to know the structure of a compound, like to confirm what you have made is what you're getting. But for my uh, research, I would be using quantitative NMR, which is slightly different. And even I am learning about it. I'm not really an expert yet. So that's, that's how my day looks like. Yeah, yeah. And thank you for explaining uh, NMR spectroscopy a little bit there, because I know we talked about the kinetic isotope effect and how you also use, uh, you have to use NMR spectroscopy with it. So it's nice to get that little background. And yeah. and your research overall sounds really fascinating. You know, like we were talking earlier, how it's done in small steps, you're contributing to those steps uh, towards eventually, hopefully, uh, trying to keep up with the pace of uh, antibiotic uh, resistance. Uh, before we end the show, Pallavi, though, I am really interested to know what you enjoy doing outside the lab once you get home uh, at 10.30 p.m. or before you head in. Uh, before I head in, I usually get up and take out some time to like uh, go for a run or just uh, work out at home because it's getting really cold outside. But uh, yeah, I, I take some time for myself and uh, just do some exercise. And then um, other than research, I do take some time off from lab uh, because although I really enjoy my work and it's like it's like a trance or meditative like when I'm doing it. But other than that, uh, I, I really like I try to have a work and life balance, but that doesn't really always work. Uh, but <laughs> but apart from research, I really like uh, writing. Uh, I don't write. I don't really write fiction, uh, like non-fiction stories, but basically about how I'm feeling on a given day, more like a diary entry, but like a prose. Yeah. Okay, like reflections. Reflections, yeah, like that. Yeah. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I have a feeling that's probably very good for our well-being. If we absolutely, yeah. Nice. It's therapeutic, like at least I can, you know, go through what I'm feeling because many a times we don't even realize what, what we're actually feeling until I, I pen it down. Yes. So, and uh, other than that, I like reading books, uh, particularly like currently for a, for a few months, I've been reading a lot of children's book. Uh, I don't know. I just like a nice escape from uh, read like because I'm, I'm leading an adult life. So kind of going back to like uh, <laughs> reading children's book gives me um, opens my imagination a lot. Um, all the children's books that I've read so far, they are just never nothing related, not even close to how adult books are. Mm. So um, I, I like doing that. And yeah, um, we need that bit of nostalgia in our lives every now and then. Yes, just to hold back to, you know, that uh, the childhood feeling. Yeah. And uh, I, I like uh, to, uh, like, watch something on Netflix. So right now I'm just re-watching um, Modern Family. But, nice. Yeah. yeah. That's always, uh, you always have your go-to shows, even if they're just playing in the background while you're cleaning up your room. Oh, perfection. Perfect. <laughs> Okay, well, Pallavi, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about your really interesting and important research. Thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you to all of you who are listening every Thursday, 12 to 1230. Tune in next week where we will have another McMaster graduate student. Take care, folks. Hey everybody, Adam here. Just wanted to say thanks again to Pallavi for letting us in on, uh, you know, the day-to-day goings-on of the lab that, uh, that she works in. We have a couple minutes, so I just thought I would maybe let you know what's going on over at scientificcanada.ca. I've been attending the Canadian Science Policy Conference, and 
releasing some short episodes on, on some of the, the topics that were getting discussed. One of my favorite sessions last week was bringing the bio-revolution to Canada towards a pan-Canadian genomic strategy. And this was particularly interesting to me because in the most recent federal science budget, this was, you know, sort of earmarked as, as one of the big ticket or investments that the federal government was going to, to make. So they committed to $400 million to this new project. And in this session, we got to hear from a bunch of the, the, uh, the people who are making this revolution happen. So we heard about the what it takes to build an effective strategy, opportunities for Canada's continued leadership in genomics, and the confluence of genomics with other transformational technologies. It was a pretty intense session, and I try to break it down for you in, uh, in 10 minutes or less. So you can head to scientificcanada.ca to hear more about that. Other sessions included uh, marshalling science, technology, and innovation to solve global problems. This was cool because we had an international panel. So we had delegates from Japan, Germany, Denmark, the UK. They talked about how international collaborations work for their different countries and some of the, the successes and uh, lessons learned from, from trying to, to do these, these big international collaborations. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, I encourage you to head to scientificcanada.ca where you can hear these, uh, these sort of debriefings. I've also written up my notes. Uh, so it's all accessible to you there. I'll be doing more of this in this coming week. And once the conference starts in earnest, I'll do my best to report on it as hard as possible. All right, thanks again. See you next week. Oh.